Hello, every hello everyone. Welcome back to Daniel Marva, a podcast the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the mid-Atlantic region that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva is a little piece of heaven that has beaches, thing in Delaware, one of the best children's hospitals in the world, and of course is home to our current president. And right now, Delaware has been in the news more than at any other time in the last couple of centuries, I would say. After signing the Constitution first, then having some of the most favorable favorable conditions for mega corporations, what was Delaware known for before Joe Biden moved from Pennsylvania to Delaware and then spent two decades in politics? Seriously, no disrespect to the office. He's just been in politics for around six years or more than I've been alive. I literally don't know a time without Biden repping me in government. But something else that may come to mind of historians is Dover Air Force Base. Thoughts of reverence, sadness, finality come to mind. And while Dover Air Force Base will not only serve as a backdrop, but as an integral part of this case, it will also see what many consider to be one of the worst travesties of the justice system that I think our little state has ever seen. Hi everyone, this is Rhonda. I'm just going back and editing through the recordings and a couple of things. First is I have noticed that sometimes there are some sound pops or cracks, so I apologize for those. Some of the words may be cut off. Also, this episode did go very long, so what I'm going to do is release the first part, and then within the next few days, I'll finish up editing on the second part and go ahead and release that as well. I just don't want it to be incredibly long for each episode, but I also don't want there to be a long period of time between the episodes. So I just wanted to add this in at the beginning, and thank you everyone for listening. And now, back to the story. Now before I begin this story, I do want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how or why an event occurred, to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and the decisions of others. I mean, no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this through publicly available sources. In some cases, personal observations about the area may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I've gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything involves accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays, such as there are further updates after the publication of this episode. As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. This particular case will entail the abuse of a child. So I will tell the story first, sticking with the known facts even though occasionally a little bit of an opinion may slip through during the telling of events. 
And after the facts are laid out, I will share some of my thoughts about the case. Let me pause it for a second. Is there Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Danger on Delmarva, a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the Mid-Atlantic region that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva is a little piece of heaven that has beaches, tax-free shopping in Delaware, one of the best children's hospitals in the world, and of course is home to our current president. And today we have the honor of having the host of Killin' Hidden Missin', Brad, just Brad, helping out today. Now, Killin' Hidden Missin' was one of the first podcasts that I found when I started listening. And it's one that I binged on a few occasions because I couldn't stop after just one episode. <laughs> and I'd wanted to reach out to see if we could do a collaboration service. But then one day he said something that really with me. So I took that as a sign and I reached out and I'm more than excited that he agreed. So thank you for, for being on here, Brad. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Thank you so much for having me, first of all, and thank you for your kind words. Oh, you're very My name's Brad. As we've already discussed, uh, I'm the host of Killing Missing Hidden. Um, I am a former criminal defense attorney from Central Alabama, and did that for about ten years before I moved into a government role where I could actually see my wife and children because trial work does not allow for that, and uh, decided to get into the podcasting game myself. So we cover true crime and some of the spookier stuff, I guess you'd say, in life. It's like a, it's like the old Unsolved Mysteries. Um, so that's, that's all I know to say about me. <laughs> well, yeah, I think um, most of us kind of got started with Unsolved Mysteries. That was kind of the, <laughs> the first one there that a lot of us saw and really started the true um crime genre so um before we i'm no robert stack but i try <laughs> well robert stack is the one and the only robert stack and did you know he, um do you know the case of gene spangler a missing person mm. no not she, by name but i'm very bad with names <laughs> she was actually an actress who went missing in hollywood and one of the last people to see her was robert stack he was a friend ah. or a neighbor, and he just happened to see her walking. And so, yeah, I just always kind of found that just very coincidental. So, yeah, Robert Stack has, I guess, always been part of true crime then, I guess you'd say. Elliot Voluntarily Manson. or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so before we do get into the story, um, I just want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how or why an event occurred. I mean, no disrespect to any parties mentioned. I have obtained facts through publicly available sources, which I will link in the description. In some cases, personal observation about the area may be discussed. This podcast is produced for inform informational purposes, and as I glean the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything stated in the podcast. 
Each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional, and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. And this particular case does entail the injury of a child. So I do try to tell the facts of an event first, even though occasionally a little bit of an opinion may slip through during the telling. Now, after the facts are laid out, I will share some of my thoughts about the case. And so the incident was base housing for Dover Air Force Base. Now, um, have you um, heard of Dover Air Force Base before? I have. I'm not much of a military guy, <laughs> so I don't know much about it. But I think, isn't it like the biggest or the most, or it has the most traffic that comes through? It's like a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the um, first one really on the East Coast. And like a lot of the airdrops um, during World War II were done um, from Dover. That's where they would take off. Um, but there is, um, you know, some more about it that's more somber. It is actually where the mortuary is for all of the servicemen who are killed overseas. And I've actually known someone who's worked in that um, mortuary. And she um, was called up not too long ago um, to go back to work in the office area of, I think, another military base. But, yeah, it's, it's a pretty big deal in Delaware, especially... Um, like we see these huge plane head <laughs> sometimes. Um, so I do want to give a little bit of history about um, the Air Force Base. So it really is kind of a beacon of pride for Delaware. I've only been on the base a couple of times or as close as you can actually get. There's a small museum there and, you know, so, you know, we took our kids there and they really showed the history and evolution of you know, planes for the Air Force. Um, now, it did actually change some names over the first few, actually. It was originally supposed to be the Municipal, then Dover Airdrome, and Construction. So, I mean, some odd names <laughs> um, for, you know, really what was the Air Force base. Um, the construction began in March of 1941, and just thinking of 1941, it was just before, um, Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So, you know, it actually went through kind of a name change before it officially opened. Um, with the events of Pearl Harbor happening, um, it became the U.S. Army Air Corps. And it was then the Dover Army Air, Air um, was renamed that in April of 1943. And I could probably go through a lot more history on that, but that just really shows how quickly it evolved over a very short period of time because of what was occurring in the world and, and with the airdrops and unfortunately with the other services that, it, that it's known for, you know, it really grew a lot in those first few years. And I've even seen it grow since I've been, you know, I'm not gonna say how old I am, but <laughs> over quite a few years. So, um, it's served a lot of different operations since it's opened, but, you know, like I said, the main thing is um, being that first Air Force base or military base on the East Coast where um, we do try to honor the men that and women that are killed in action. They've sacrificed their lives to preserve our freedom, to help win the freedom for others. So um, as far as 
you know, just any other air base that does have the mortuary services, Dover Air Force Base is the largest and service members to uh, and prepare them for their final trip home. And you know, as I did mention, I actually knew someone who did work there and I could just see when she talked about it that it was really a heavy weight that was you know, bestowed upon everybody who worked there. And you could really see the importance to you know, everybody who worked there, just you know, how much respect they had for everyone who came through. So she felt that she was doing you know, everything to honor those who died for our freedom. So Dover Air Force Base will serve as the backdrop and an integral part of this case. And also, did you know that I live near a mega Air Force Base? No, I, I drive by Maxwell Air Force Base every day, which is where they have the Air College for the Air Force. Oh, does that mean people learn how to fly? Well, there? it's where they send the officers who are doing the career thing to get their okay. degrees and learn leadership. And then we have the international officer program. So when I go to lunch, I get to see lots of people in Italian air force uniforms and, <laughs> you know, French air force uniforms and all that stuff. It's, it's pretty interesting. And it's obviously a big part of our community. And I learned recently it was actually founded by the Wright brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah. They well, came to Montgomery to set up a uh, flying school for the military. And it's just grown. I think that was in like 1910 or something like that. And it's just grown over the years. That that would probably count as probably the oldest almost, you would think, considering it was the Wright brothers. Yeah. One of the top five probably, if not the very. I don't think it's the <laughs> oldest, but I think it's in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, see even across the country or in different parts of the country, there's still things that really tie everybody together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we can all, you know, we all usually know someone who's been in the military and, you know, really, at least I know I have reverence for anybody who is willing to sacrifice, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the time away from their families and, you know, being overseas and then also the, the possibility of you know not coming home and we actually did have two young men within a matter of eight days i think it was eight days pass away from in my small town mm. they knew each other oh, and man. yeah they were in two different parts like afghanistan and iraq and both of them so it, it touches everybody and unfortunately there are sometimes bad apples so to mm -hmm. speak and that you know will play a key role in this case. So the men and the women who do work on the base, they devote their lives to service and sometimes it does mean leaving their loved ones behind. And Nicole Dudley was one such service member. She was the mother to a small son named Evan and she was called to serve in Qatar. Nicole went on to become an Air Force member in October of 2005 and she had worked really hard through her career um, she earned a criminal justice degree, and in January of 2011, she welcomed little Evan John Dudley into the world. And I will try to put up on my podcast page um, a picture of the two together, 
because you could really tell the joy that he brought to her face. But when he was still pretty young in May of 2012, so just a little over a year old at that point, she was called to serve. And that meant that she would need to leave Evan while she was overseas. So at the time she was going overseas, he was only around 16 months old. And now when this occurs in the military, especially if the service member is a single parent or both parents are in the military, a family care plan is developed and approved. And according to military.com, a family care plan is following. And I'm quoting from a couple of the um, most important parts here. Should assign a guardian for your family and a special power of attorney and make sure guardian understands his or her responsibilities, arrange for housing, food, transportation, and emergency needs, arrange for childcare, education, and medical care, and arrange for necessary travel and escort to transfer family members to their guardian. Now, I, I have seen this a couple of times. Um, my niece actually and her husband are both in the military and they were both actually deployed at the same time and they had three kids. Mm. So they were older kids, so they weren't you know like little ones running around, but I know that there were a lot of things they had to do before then so do you know you know looking at it more like on a legal standpoint brad you know what's the importance of doing all to outline what the guardians can do do they have things such as medical decisions or the power to make medical decisions and things like that so the term of course there's no easy answer because it's the law <laughs> uh, the term guardian is a little nebulous and it can be used in a lot of different contexts like in alabama we there's not a way to pass guardianship to a third party per se we at, we do what's called a um uh temporary uh delegation of parental rights and it it's effectively the same thing and what it provides for is whatever the parents want so like parents get in trouble sometimes because they'll use those to try to get their kid into a school in a district they don't live in. Uh, but in general, when people use them, it's, um, I've seen it when, you know, the parents work, cause them to go overseas. Um, we've done it with military folks before. I assume each branch has their own form that they fill out, but we've drafted them from scratch whenever I've handled it. And traditionally what, um, Kind of, at least under Alabama law, the standard delegation covers everything a parent can do except consent to marriage and consent to like abortion or pregnancy related issues. But otherwise, yes, they can make any medical decisions they feel are necessary. They, they stand as the parent as far as the law is concerned. Okay. So that's, you know, that's really good to know because this does happen. It's with, you know, a parent going overseas or, you know, both parents who just, for some reason, are both assigned to, you know, different places overseas, but both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while Nikki was away, she did arrange to have Evan live with his godmother. Her name is Nadine, so to try to keep things um, a little less confusing, I will refer to um, Evan's mother as Nikki and his godmother as Nicole. 
Now, sometimes um, they do refer to Evan as EJ as well. So if you hear me say that, it's because in whatever context um, I was researching, it may have had him listed as EJ. So um, there was also a provision in the papers that did allow um, someone named Aubrey Corbett. She was the wife of an airman named Justin Corbett to watch him so that he could play with the Corbett's son and also to give Nicole a little bit of a rest, you know, because she would be having um, another child, you know, kind of a respite, which you see a lot of times, I believe, in cases like this. One of these visits, though, to the Corbett's household where just disaster seemed to barrel its way into Nikki's life. She had been counting down the days until she could come home and you know, see her little ray of sunshine. And it was only 10 more days to go, but then she received a call that no parent would ever expect. The Red Cross called to say that Evan had fallen down some stairs, was in the hospital, and she needed to get home. So, you know, I can't imagine being a parent, what she must have been feeling for that whole, you know, just trying to get home, probably hundreds of thoughts going through her mind about what she would expect to see. Oh, it would drive you crazy. But, oh, I mean, even just, I mean, honestly, having school start for the first time, you know, a few weeks ago down here, you know, just having them literally a mile away. You know, um, it, I worry. Um, my older son is actually on the autism spectrum. So to have him go back to school after a year of not being in classes, mm -hmm. that was very scary. So to be a mother all the way across, you know, across the ocean, I, I just cannot even imagine. I don't think there were words that probably we could use to describe how she was feeling. Um, it was just unspeakable things, those unspeakable feelings that you hope nobody ever has and you probably wouldn't wish on your own worst enemy. I know that's a saying you hear a lot, but that's probably one of the few things I would say, yeah, that, that's that got to be so horrifying. But she, um, and she did get to hold him. And I did see a picture of her in bed next to him. So she you know, got to hold him and let him know that she was there let her know that they did not believe that this was an accident. So EJ had been visiting the Corbett household. It was November 3rd and at 3.52 p.m. Justin Corbett called 911 from base housing. He said that Evan was not responsive and that he had fallen down eight carpeted steps. And you know, while the family action plan listed Aubrey she was not home, so he was in Justin's care, um, but he wasn't actually, Justin was not listed on the papers. Have you ever seen that before, Brad, or, you know, or have you, do you know how that would affect it, things? Yeah, I mean, for an emergency situation, I don't think any of the doctors or nurses would stand in the way. Where it would get iffy is if they had to make a, med a major medical decision, such as, you know, life support or an amputation or something like that. Okay, so um, at first, Evan was taken to Kent General Hospital, which is pretty close to Dover. I will say, too, um, at least in Delaware, the hospitals tend to be somewhat far apart. I'm lucky that I live within 10 minutes of a hospital, but then the next one is like 40 minutes away at least. Hmm. So Dover is one of the bigger cities 
he's they were able to get him general but you know as i mentioned in a lot of my introductions we do have one of the best children's hospitals in the world you know it's considered one of the best um people come from all over you know even other countries to visit it mm -hmm. um, it's called ai dupont and delaware was actually known for the dupont manufacturing um i think it's now exalta is what it's called um, as far as a company um, it really is a top hospital so he did have head trauma and that placed him in critical condition but there were other injuries that didn't seem like they could be um, consistent with a fall he had a retinal detachment and you know while I've never of course experienced that um, you know that takes a lot of force to actually detach a retina um, he had contusions to his head he had a number of bruises and there had been people who saw Evan previously like on the previous day and they had not noticed anything wrong with him to quote um, some of the report so there was nothing going on within the previous 24 hours or so that would say that EJ had been injured previously so the time frame, I think, especially with having two different families involved, you know, that's really one of my first questions was, okay, is there a way to kind of tie this down? So, um, and I'm pretty sure I'll have a couple questions in a few minutes, <laughs> just, <laughs> just to see if you've ever experienced or seen, you know, an incident like that. Um, but a lot of different medical experts, it was not an accident and it all, all started um, a team that treated him at AI DuPont down to the ME and a pediatric pathologist, even a child abuse expert. So there were experts that ran like a whole gamut of when they would treat a child from beginning to unfortunately looking at it after um, Evan had passed away. And each and every heard that it was abuse and a homicide. So the investigation did take a while and Nikki did express frustration about the length of time and lack of communication she felt that she got um, from the team. Now I'm gonna hope that I say his name correctly, but Detective Shavak was the lead investigator on the case. And he did say, quote, we knew it was going to take some time to charge him only because of the complexity of the investigation child death cases can be among some of the most complex cases to investigate end quote now um you know i know that you you were a defense attorney and you probably even if you didn't or weren't involved in cases you may have heard about cases or seen cases with child abuse which must be extremely difficult mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah and do you think um, one of the biggest factors is even if a child's hurt that beforehand they can't say anything, like they can't describe what's going on or call, and by the time it does get to the hospital, it's probably too late? Yeah, it's 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 a real challenge to deal with um, child victims, both from a prosecutorial standpoint and a defense standpoint, because... I mean, if, if you've had kids, you, you know the stories they can come up with. And mm -hmm. uh, you have to be very, very delicate in how you question them. And unfortunately, 
say like in a child sex abuse case, the disclosure is often first made to a relative, you know, to mom or a grandma or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, they panic. What did he do? Do you tell me what's wrong? And that puts mm-hmm. the children in a position where, you know, they have a natural need to try to please authority figures. And so they'll right. start telling a story they think will make the mom or the grandma or the dad or whoever happy rather than necessarily telling the truth. And if you can get a trained forensic um, investigator in there early, they can ask the questions in a way that won't color their testimony uh, one way or the other. So you actually have a better chance of getting the truth. So prosecutors have to deal with deciding whether or not to try to send someone to jail based off of the testimony of a small child. And on the flip side, you know, defending those sorts of cases, how do you cross-examine a child in front of a jury? (laughs) I mean, there's just no good way to do it, uh, which is really unfortunate because if the child's testimony has been colored in some way, you know, who's going to like the lawyer that gets up and bullies a five-year-old and just saying, you know, you're not telling the truth, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah. it, it, it presents a lot of challenges and really you have to rely on other evidence mm-hmm. to build the case again, as the prosecutor or as, as the defendant, uh, because you just can't rely unlike any other typical criminal case on what the victim is saying. In this case too, Justin Corbett's son would have been there and even given that young age, even if they could point or maybe it's everything, it still could have been colored in some ways. You know, looking at his son, he doesn't want daddy to get in trouble if that was the case. Right. And then also, too, you know, my my kids are a little older now, but even now, I mean, they can come home from school and it'd be like, where did you get that bruise? Or where did you, you know, they've been playing something in gym. Right. Or something like that. And it's just natural that children have some bruises, but for a fall and over eight carpeted steps to cause that much damage, it did cause a lot of questions and it did take at least a few years to, you know, review and investigate. But finally on February eighteenth in two thousand fourteen, the day came where Justin Corbett was charged and it was is a murder by abuse or neglect in the first degree. So Delaware State Troopers, along with um, the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigations, arrested him. And he was taken to the James T. Vaughn Correctional Facility with a $100,000 cash bond. And eventually, I'm pretty sure I will cover an episode about James T. Vaughn Correctional Facility. Um, yeah, it's I'm I'm pretty sure as with most um, people who are charged with child abuse, it was definitely not a place that he wanted to be. Is that a state facility did, or? It is, um, and the case that I know that I'll probably get to is there was a riot um, a few years ago, and one of the guards was actually killed, mm. and there was kind of a standoff, and you know, so there. There is a lot going on there, and it's really the main men's Delaware being pretty small. Um, we're actually one of the most populated by like 
you know, per capita, per square mile, you know, the number of people who live within, within each square mile. But, you know, this is really the big um, prison. There is one closer to where I am, which is further south, but I don't think it's anywhere in terms of the size mm -hmm. that James T. Vaughn is. So um, I've actually you know, known people that have worked there. And, you know, again, it, it could be pretty rough. I'm sure any pre prison can. <laughs> But yeah, well, they're not I mean, they're not pleasant places to be. Yeah, I guess by definition they are not going to be pleasant places right. to be. But um, yeah, as with everything that we probably hear that when someone's in there for child abuse, it's never, you know, it, it can be even worse than mm -hmm. than this because of the fact that it was on the Air Force Base because there was a parent deployed overseas, because the person charged was also part of the Air Force and not, say, a spouse, all of that really, really played in to making this a big case down here. You know, we saw the articles. It was on the news with each and every day of the, um, the um, of being in court. So, you know, of course, Corbett did continue to say the death was an accident, that he had just left EJ for a moment, then he fell. But um, it was said that even Corbett underwent counseling because he did feel guilty because EJ died under his care. And he also felt guilty for what Nikki Dudley was going through. So originally the trial was slated for about two weeks, but it did not take that long. Now I did um, refer to a specific article where they did a really good job of updating the same article each day. So you kind of saw a flow chart of what was reviewed each mm -hmm. day and um you know really the opening statements was in day one you know just kind of reviewing the fact that nikki dudley entrusted the to help watch her son when she was overseas and it also listed the injuries that ej had received and the defense just plainly stated ej had fallen down the stairs and that's what had caused the death now, on the first day, six people were able to take the stand. And that seems very, very quick. Um, it, I guess we're kind of used to maybe Law and Order in those shows where sometimes someone's on the stand for hours and hours, yet they, they come to a verdict in two days. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of while we're on that, too, you know, I, I think as well as expectations that are set for people in the community, it seems like on TV, within two weeks, they go to trial you know, for a murder case or something like that. And that just doesn't happen. There's time to investigate and you get all of the information. So it's now a couple of years later. And, you know, once they've kind of gathered everything, it's actually only going to take about two weeks. And in this case, even less. Um, so of those six people on that first day, they were also people who you know, testified about EJ's overall health. Um, some had even watched him at some points in time and, you know, to use some of the phrase, they said he was in perfect health. And after day one, there were nine witnesses left for the prosecution. So on day in, witnesses were called, including Aubrey Corbett. Now that's Justin's wife who was listed on the family plan. So according to a friend of Nicole Dudley's, um, 
and she had a blog going on about this too testimony included the following and i am quoting from the blog said she described their parenting style and how they disciplined evan and jacks and jacks was the corbett son mrs corbett described forms of discipline such as using a wooden spoon a flip-flop and a fly swatter to pop their children she used the term pop mostly though again a quote hurting their feelings was enough when it came to discouraging the children from you know having bad behavior so this is you know what justin's wife testified to now you know, i really want to kind of interject a few thoughts especially about the whole pop and um, hurting their feelings was enough i'm no parenting expert but especially to you know 16 months old or two months two years old to to hurt their feelings that's gotta really affect a child's trust them you know like these are their parents or caregivers and they're hurting their feelings and like that i guess i'm a positive reinforcement type of person <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um day two did include the dover air force base first responders and they did that when they got there bruising was apparent on ed and along the way the defense you know, theorized that the first responders caused the bruises but they, they explained gentle you know as gentle as they could be and i'm sure you know having that type of training the pressure that you would put on a full-grown person when you're doing compressions compared to a baby are just miles and miles apart so be. yeah so definitely you know the first are trained in that and also the there was a delaware state trooper who attended the scene and he he said that when he was interviewing or talking to justin corbett corbett had used the word that he fell backwards down the stairs now on day three there was a testimony it kind of went through all the background and we are now at the medical testimony and you know again they reiterated that his death he had bleeding between um, his brain and skull he had lung contusions and injuries to other organs now the injuries to his head caused the doctors to declare him brain dead and they did say it was a result of child abuse um, now the doctor who had been providing testimony at this point had not been working at the time that did ai dupont but you know she had spoken with the care team that did work with him and looking at all of the information everybody agreed that these injuries could not have calmed down or come by him falling down eight carpeted stairs so um, one of the defense attorneys when he started to interview one of the delaware state police detectives who was working on the case um, they kind of referred back to that incident where i said the trooper used the word backwards um, to describe mm -hmm. the fall and you know, up until that point, there was some confusion because that word had not been used before. And at some point, a first responder had used that. And the defense attorney really wanted to kind of hone in on that. I'm not really sure why they thought it was that important. But they really tried to hone in on the fact that the word's used for the first time on day two. But so... um Brad, I've, I've kind of been surprised sometimes at the handling of crime scenes 
And so my thoughts are, there's been either an unattended or unexpected death, you know, so not someone who's been sick for a while, someone who is apparently young and healthy. I feel it should be treated as a crime scene at first. And then if they can, you know, back away from that, that's fine. But I've heard of cases such as those that are deemed a suicide and ended up being a murder, but the crime scene was gone by the time mm -hmm. the Emmy, you know, came back with that. So, um, with the defense attorney, he seems to be questioning about why they didn't preserve the scene. Mm -hmm. um, so in your experience, does law enforcement preserve a scene even if they think it looks like an accident? What I've always heard cops say is the crime scene is theirs, the body is the coroner's or medical examiner's. And so... From my experience, what I've seen is the police will secure the scene until the coroner arrives. And the coroner will make kind of an initial assessment. Um, you know, I mean, 90% of the time, if somebody's got bullet holes in them, you know it's not a suicide. <laughs> uh, unless it's, you know, done in a fashion that makes it obvious. Um, you know, if, if you find a 90-year-old woman dead in her bed probably natural causes. So the police just kind of, it's a little bit difficult for them from the standpoint of they have to make a call as to whether or not to consider it a homicide and to move forward in collecting evidence or things like that, because they're going to have rules and policies in place about how long they keep information and evidence from each crime scene. And if you treat every death as a crime scene, you're quickly just going to run out of storage space. And so there's logistical considerations they have to take into consideration. Um, from my experience, there has to be something that suggests to them or to the coroner that what they're looking at is not a natural death. It's a homicide. And unfortunately you will have suicides that turn out to be homicides and you can't discover that until an autopsy's done and they can't secure a crime scene for that long. Um, right. you know, especially in Alabama where we're lacking in resources, um, you know, it can take two or three weeks to get a autopsy report back. Oh, wow. And so you can't, you know, under the law, no judge is going to let, a, a group of cops overtake somebody's house mm -hmm. for that long, uh, for example. Yeah, I guess, too, especially in this case, there's a child who go to bed to get his stuff, you mm -hmm. know, just, you know, things you don't want to, I guess, go to a family member's or a hotel, which around here, a family member, if you're in the Air Force, your family members are probably, you Not know, local. <laughs> hours away. Yeah. <laughs> So that, that is a good point. Yeah, that might not be like the next day that you get an autopsy. It could be days mm. or weeks even. Okay, yeah, that, I had not thought of that. Thank you very much. That's so. what I'm here for. <laughs> so, um, there were some photos that were presented with the Emmy. I did see i wasn't even looking for them because honestly it's very hard for me to look at pictures of anything like that i was just looking for information scrolling down one came up and it was like 
uh, you know, it really, I think if I'd been on that jury, I would have ended up crying by the end of that day. Sure. I may have ended up crying by the end of the first day, yeah. <laughs> definitely by the end of that day. Um, you know, it showed while he was in the hospital and I'm not going to directly link those photos in the sources. You know, I, I don't think that's necessary. Just as long as we know that the Emmy says that, yes, this was abuse. Um, I just looked at them and I really, I can't see how it was not abuse. But that, you know, the defense attorney, that's what he's trying to do is give his, you know, his client a good defense. And, you know, it's hard to know, too. None, nobody was there except for those that were there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and everybody does deserve a proper defense, you know, somebody who is going to stand up for the defendant. So at this point, the case went to the jury, found guilty on a charge. But it was not by the murder by abuse or neglect by and recklessly causing the death of a child. That would have held a minimum of 10 years. But it was criminally no. negligent homicide held a maximum of eight years in prison. So this is where I've decided to end this week's episode. Um, there really wasn't any strong place to end it um, without leaving a little bit of you know information left unsaid but that's another reason i want to try to go ahead and get the second episode out as quickly as i can so i appreciate everyone hanging in there and listening this is a very tough episode um you know anything involving a child especially is a very tough episode and if you do have any you know case suggestions questions anything like that my contact information will be listed in the description of the podcast also any of the sources you know as usual will be in the description as well and I do want to say thank you to Brad for coming in and helping me with this I really appreciate that and you know he will definitely be on the second part of this episode as well of course and I look forward to talking to everybody real soon bye